Welcome to Give and Take, where yours truly, Scott Jones, interviews artists, activists, authors, and a wide array of other thought leaders that help make our world the interesting place it is. My guest today is Tom Nichols. Tom is Professor of National Security Affairs at the U.S. Naval War College, an adjunct professor at the Harvard Extension School, and former aide to U.S. Senator John Hines. He's also the author of several works on foreign policy and international security affairs, including The Sacred Cause, No Use, Nuclear Weapons, and U.S. National Security, Eve of Destruction, The Coming Age of Preventative War, and The Russian Presidency, and most recently, The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge, and Why It Matters. He's also a five-time Jeopardy champion, if you can believe that. I hope you enjoy the conversation half as much as I did. I give you Tom Nichols. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, I, it's really hard to figure out what to talk with you about, given that you're an expert in defense issues in Russia. I mean, what will we talk about? But, uh, <laughs> but for, <laughs> yeah, it's not like there's anything in the news. No, but first I'd like to, I mean, you are a five-time Jeopardy winner. I am. That's Back amazing. in the days when they uh, retired you after five, yes. And you actually had to win six. You played six times, right? Because actually you contested a question and they actually thought you were right and you got to come back. It's even better than that. I didn't contest the question. Um, Jeopardy's, uh, watch, Jeopardy's viewers did. Uh, I, I um, came home and, of course, the, the shows are taped ahead of time and I was sworn to secrecy. And when one of the shows aired, uh, Jeopardy called me the next day and said, um, we were deluged by, uh, this is show you how long ago it was, they said we were deluged by emails and faxes. Um, because people are still using faxes and, uh, you know, people said, you were wrong, you were wrong. And I said, geez, I didn't even occur to me. And so the, the, this was one case where even though I wrote a book about experts, uh, crowdsourcing actually helped me out because, um, enough people knew that Jeopardy was wrong. And so, yes, I had to win six games to be a five-time champion because I went back and I won that last game. Crowdsourcing worked for you before it even was a thing. Before it was a thing, right? You were an early adopter. <laughs> and you actually, uh, did somebody try to intimidate you? Didn't a woman say right before the Don Pardo comes on, like, hey, you don't yes. want to beat me in front of my eight-year-old daughter? Yeah. Well, it just uh, as a warning to never engage in psychological warfare with me, um, this um, this woman turns to me. Now, the way Jeopardy is now, they're already standing at the podiums and they say, welcome to Jeopardy. And here they are and they get started. In the old days, we used to walk out. So they they would have us in the back, in the dark. Um, and then one by one, we would walk out and walk up to the podium. And this woman turns to me in the dark and says, like out of nowhere, uh, because I was on a winning streak. I'd already won a couple of games. And she said, you don't want to beat me in front of my eight-year-old daughter, do you? And I had just gotten married. And uh, without even thinking, I said, well, your daughter's always going to love you. I just got married. My wife will leave me. <laughs> and, yeah, and she just great. she kind of froze. And she couldn't tell if I was kidding because I said it. I deadpanned it completely. And she just turned around. And then I, I, um, I beat the pants off both of them. <laughs> So do you think you could take Ken Jennings head to head? You know, I, people always ask me this and I don't, I don't know Ken Jennings. So I don't want to like talk smack about a guy I don't know. The thing I'll say is this jeopardy. And I think Jennings would be the first to admit Jennings and I and anybody else who ever went on jeopardy 
a big part of it is getting the right categories and getting the right opponents. Uh, on any given day, reasonably good Jeopardy champions can beat each other, depending on what the categories are, how fast you are off the buzzer. The question that Jennings finally lost on, I thought was a pretty easy question. Um, he, he couldn't figure out what, um, you know, what company, in, I think it was something about what co- this company in America does most of its business in the space of two months every year. And of course, it was H&R Block, um, because tax prep. Sure. And I, I was like, duh. Um, but you know, that's, it depends on what the category is. I missed some questions where people walked up to me and said, how could you be so dumb? Um, so I, I, I don't know if I could beat Ken Jennings. I certainly couldn't at my age when I was in my prime back in my thirties, I probably could have given him a run for his money. And is it, is it how much of Jeopardy two is the buzzer? I would think the buzzer thing is not actually easy. Like the reflex oh, the buzzer is key. And, and here's where the one place again, without, without slamming Ken Jennings, once you've won a couple of games and you've got the rhythm of the button down, you have a natural advantage over every new player because the button has a kind of a rhythm. There's a timing. What people can't see at home is there's a light that will go on when Alex is done speaking and you can't buzz in until Alex is finished and the, and the buzzers go hot. They're unlocked right at that moment. I think I think most Jeopardy champs would agree that the way you play the game in real life is to ignore Alex, read the question, and then stare at those lights till till the buzzer goes hot. And once you've figured out the rhythm of doing that, you are going to be able to smoke the newer guys because it could take them, you know, five or ten minutes to figure that out. And it's only a 26, 27-minute game. Uh, so, you know, if you can't figure out that buzzer, buzzer in three or four minutes, you're screwed. So, yeah, it's a natural advantage for people who have won to keep winning on a streak because they figured out the buzzer. Tom, this is fascinating. I could talk to you about this all day because I love Jeopardy, but there are other things we've got to cover. But this is, you should write a book about this. <laughs> yeah, you should, well, you, you should do done, a Jeopardy so training. I, I, you could do there, Jeopardy there training. A- Pardon? You could do Jeopardy training for people. Well, there are a couple of guys who wrote a, a book called the Jeopardy J- Champion Book or something. So it's been done. It was done better than I could do it. But um, I'll give one tip to your listeners, which is if you want to have the experience and try to figure it out, it's a really weird thing. But a friend of mine who was on before I was said, watch the game standing up. Huh. Um, because it's a different mental dynamic. People sit in their barca loungers with their feet up with a beer in their hands and they yell answers, you know, snorkel, Albuquerque. <laughs> and uh, it's not the way the game is played. Stand there patiently and wait for Alex. To just stand up, wait for Alex to stop speaking, and then see how fast you know the question. And, and uh, you'd be surprised that it's a much more difficult game that way. And it was great advice for me, and it helped me win. So It's funny that you say that because I do almost every podcast standing up. I don't know why, but maybe maybe I've got natural Jeopardy inclinations. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the instincts. So you've written a great book, The Death of Expertise, and it, it, basically you're arguing that it's not that uh, we, it's not that people always, we, it's not that we've never had ignorance as a problem in the history of the United States or anything, but now we've made ignorance a virtue. It's like it's celebrated to to not know things, right? Right. It's it's hip. Ignorance right. is in. <laughs> Which, as a professor, you've got to love that. 
<laughs> well, yeah, except, you know, I, I will be the first to say that the very esoteric knowledge of professors, you know, was never fashionable. I mean, you know, nobody wants to be stuck at the cocktail party next to the guy who says, well, I'm a 14th century French Renaissance poetry expert. And people say, oh, great. Shoot me now. Um, but <laughs> I, it's, it's even, uh, I think, on basic things like, you know, uh, well, we're going to talk about what do you think we ought to do in Syria? And people say, I don't know where Syria is, and I don't care. And I have strong opinions about it anyway. What is well, Aleppo? Is Gary Johnson? Yeah, what is Aleppo? <laughs> I mean, look at it, look at the the break. Now, you know, I have no bad feeling. I, I should add here, by the way, that my views are not the government's. These are my personal views. I have no animus toward Gary Johnson. I didn't vote for him. I didn't think he was a very serious guy. But, you know... Um, people kind of wrote it off as when this terrible disaster is happening and a man running for president of the United States goes, I don't know what that is. And people went, oh, Gary, you scamp. Um, whereas, you know, in an earlier time, that, that pretty much would have been a disqualifying moment. Truthfully, almost every moment Donald Trump had on the campaign would have been a disqualifying moment. But you know, I, I was astounded. Gary Johnson actually even defended himself saying, well, the people that know all this information about where all these cities are and stuff, they're the ones that start all the wars. Maybe me knowing right. less will keep. I, I, I right. was Maybe astounded that he said that. will solve everything as though Benito Mussolini was like a physicist or something. Um, you know, the, the, as one of my friends um, uh, had a great line, so I can't. I, I wish I'd written it, but I, I have to give credit where it's due to a friend of mine where he said, you know, an appeal to authority is a fallacy, but it's not that doesn't mean you should replace it by an appeal to ignorance. Hmm. Yeah, you write and you, you write in your book, you say that um, to reject the advice of experts is to assent is to assert autonomy, a way for Americans to insulate their increasingly fragile egos from ever being told they're wrong about anything. It's a new declaration of independence. No longer do we hold these truths to be self-evident. We hold all truths to be self-evident, even the ones that aren't true. All things are knowable and every opinion on any subject is as good as any other. Yep. And it's, it's basically a way uh, of a childish, um, perpetually adolescent American public to say, you're not the boss of me. Did you, you, know? ever, did you ever see the show Newsroom? Oh yeah, that was a classic. Wow, there's a there's a callback. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I th I'm thinking the new one, the new HBO one, um, with uh, where Will McAvoy, the main character, says that the media is biased towards fairness, and they said, "How ah. can you be biased towards fairness?" And he says, "Well, if the Republicans on on a on a party line vote passed a resolution in Congress that said the Earth is flat, the New York Times would lead with Democrats and Republicans uh, d uh, divided over shape of Earth." <laughs> so it's yeah. like there's two sides to every story. Yeah. Um, well, some of that's a problem with just the way we do journalism. And uh, as you know, there's a little chapter in the book about why journalism's all messed up these days. Um, but, but some of it is that things that shouldn't be controversies are controversies because people don't know enough for them not to be controversies. Uh, you know, that this thing about whether the earth is flat, I mean, we joke about it. But just recently, there was an athlete who said, well, you know, there's a lot of opinions about that. Well, no, there aren't. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, yeah. maybe you're just stupid. And and uh, the, the notion that you once had a foundational level of knowledge that would have snuffed out a lot of these false debates, that's gone. I mean, you know, everything is up for grabs. And I think 
uh, I, I will let me play both sidesism for a moment. Lay some of this at the feet of the conservatives, who um, you know are happy to attack science and attack knowledge because it doesn't comport with things they want to get done, uh, and and gets in the way of mobilizing a lot of people who aren't very smart. But I'm also going to lay this at the foot of liberals and Democrats who have done a similar thing, mobilizing a lot of people who are you know not particularly intelligent, but also encouraged. 40 years of postmodernism that says there's no such thing as the truth. You know, everything is kind of, you kind of digest it and see it through your own eyes. And, you know, so now we have right and left both assaulting the truth for their own political uh, purposes and people in the middle, uh, um, the average citizen being told, don't worry, you're smart enough to figure anything out you want to figure out. So we, we've got, very cynical manipulation of knowledge on one hand and an outbreak of unbelievable narcissism on the other and in the and left behind are the knowers the experts the professionals that nobody really wants to hear from because we're always you know we're the skunk at the garden party um, we're always the ones that say well that's not true or things are more complicated in a society that now has no t- new toleration for nuance whatsoever do you feel like left and right to have switched places a little bit in that now you had the left who is sense it seems to be a lot of the censorious nature in, in the academy and thing is on the side of the left. And it's the right that seems to become a fan of relativism and your own facts and fake news. I mean it, it's almost like there's been a flip-flop. <laughs> like, yeah. I although I I, I, I it's not a flip-flop though, because the left has not now become the champions of facts and, you true. know, uh, I mean, it, it's basically that the same kind of poisonous relativism that started on the left has now captured everything and captured both parties and all these political movements, um, all in the name of never making the voter feel bad about anything. You know, nobody, and think of how, think of how far we've come in just 10 years. You know, during the 2008 campaign, both John McCain and, um, Barack Obama did something that today would be unthinkable. They stood in front of factories in Pennsylvania and Ohio and said, well, we both have different solutions about this, but these factories are not going to reopen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Th- like, uh, just because, you know, sensible people just know that's the case. It's just, they're just never going to reopen. It's not going to happen. Fast forward to 2016, and everybody's lying their ass off in every direction. Oh, sure, we're going to, you know, um, you know, Clinton's going to re-educate you, and we're going to turn them into high-tech, you know, hives of activity, and Trump's going to, you know, beat all the Chinese and the Mexicans and take all the jobs back. The, the idea of telling the truth and just treating voters like adults who have to hear difficult things is long gone. Um, we treat the we treat the voters now like children because that's how they want to be treated. Hmm. You, you lay a lot of the fault of this. I mean, not you point to universities and this idea of the uh, the college student as consumer <laughs> and the customer's always right. I mean, how 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 have the universities kind of contributed to this deleterious thing well, by, in our culture? Well, under, underpinning a lot of this is the completely nutty notion that everybody needs to go to college. Um, you know, every time Bernie Sanders said that during the election, my head exploded uh, because he said, well, you know, college is now what high schools used to be. And I said, exactly. And because it's because of people like you, you know, saying that everybody should go to college, that we have, look, degrees suffer from inflation the way money does. When you print enough of them, they become worthless. And the problem is when everybody decides to go to college, 
uh, you go, not everybody can afford to pay for it. Not everybody ought to be there. Not everybody's going to like it. So you have to do several things at once. You have to figure out how to capture all of this endless loan money. You have to make sure that the students stay long enough to spend that loan money, and you have to make sure that they had a happy experience. So you recruit more and more students, you make the experience easier and easier, and you make sure that the, that the, that the most important value translated to the students is their self-esteem and personal happiness. And that's crazy. College is supposed to be uncomfortable. I mean, I had fun in college. I think everybody has fun in college. It's a great time of your life if you go. Um, but it's also, it, college also made me deeply uncomfortable. I mean, where I had to sit and grapple with, you know, what do I really know? What do I believe in? How good am I at what I think I'm doing? You know, what are the evaluations of these teachers and what do they mean to me? That's, that's a part of growing up. Um, and people who go into the trades go through a similar thing. They're apprenticed or they get, you know, they're working through a job and they either make a boss happy or not happy. That's all part of the maturing process. College is a way now for a lot of students. And, and look, I, I think American universities are still the best in the world. But I think a lot of colleges have basically become a way for, for students and unfortunately for a fair number of faculty to defer growing up. Oh, and, yeah, and yeah, getting yeah. getting on and becoming adults. Yeah, my friend Mark Oppenheimer, he, he's a New York Times and LA Times contributor. And um, I heard him recent remark somewhere that, you know, he said, you know, what we do with universities now, it's like, it's, it's extended adolescence. You know, kids like it because they get to party for four years and delay adulthood. And four parents five, like or six. Know, five or six or so. Yeah. And parents like it because they kind of, they, their kids, you know, they get to keep their kids longer, you know, kind of in the, yep. queue, like in the infantilize them along. He said, you know, when you go to college in France, you kind of get an apartment, you're working, you're Parisian, you know, you're, it's not this sort of like, <laughs> it's not like it is here, you know, it's a different, it's a much more adulting kind of process. Yeah, I, I, um, and I was actually glad that I went to the college I did now. I mean, I went to Boston University back starting in the late seventies where, um, you know, the first thing that the president of the school, the infamous John Silver said was don't get hit by a streetcar. <laughs> and we all laughed at him just like that. And two weeks later, a kid got hit by a streetcar, um, you know, where basically 30,000 of my closest friends and I, you know, kind of had to swim our way through it. And within two years, I was living off campus. I was working a full-time job. Um, you know, I, I think there is a way that you can go to college. That's an important part of adulting. But what you see now, look, look at the infamous um, Yale Halloween moment. I talk about this in the book where this, this student unloads on the housemaster, um, because his wife had had the temerity to say that, you know, maybe we shouldn't having, be having psychological meltdowns about culturally inappropriate Halloween costumes. And the most important part of her rant was she said to him, this is not an intellectual space. Your job is to create a home here. And I thought, this is a student who has been completely sold on the exact opposite of what college is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's not a home. Um, you know, a, a thousand other kids are going to sleep in the bed you've slept in. Um, you're not the, your, your dainty feet are not the first ones to cross the Harvard Yard. It's not your home. It is an intellectual space. And, and you're not, you don't own it you are paying for the privilege of attending it for as long as the university thinks you're in good stead to continue as a student. And the idea that you would say that to a student is almost unthinkable today that, you know, college yeah. is not about you. And, you know, I heard Zachary Quinto interviewed a couple years ago on Howard Stern and he, you know, the guy did a uh, oratorio program at Carnegie Mellon university, one of the finest dramatic 
programs. Yes, a, a great program. And Stern said, would you do it again now? He said, I don't know. He said, I love my training, but now everybody makes it from YouTube. And all these things, you know, he's, it's, it's this sort of dumbing down and democratizing of the art form. So he's like, are you really, you know, so many people that are great actors aren't appreciated as great actors because you can become a star without any dramatic talent. Do you worry about that yes. in, in, in expert in, in like in all sorts of expertise fields that people are not going to go into them? Yes, but up up to a point because you know I as I say in the book one of my favorite and I actually kept this taped over my desk for the years that I was working on my dissertation and when I was a young uh, writer working on my first books uh, was a quote from Hemingway he said there are two absolute necessities with regard to writing one is a real seriousness about writing the other unfortunately is talent and, and I think that you can't you know you can't you can yeah, you can become, you can kind of create a fame bubble by, you know, taking a bath in Fruit Loops uh, on on YouTube. You know that that'll work for a while, but in the end, if you're a talentless jerk, then you're just a talentless jerk, and you know it's okay. I shouldn't even say jerk. If you're just talentless, it's okay to be talentless. Not everybody, you know, grows up to be an astronaut. And and I think that's part of the problem with our society is this notion of, hey, you know what? You might grow up and the most important thing you do in your life is that you're going to work some job that you may or may not like very much, but that you'll get married, you'll have children, you'll have family, you'll be part of a community. I mean, we really have created generations now, successive generations of young people who think that unless they're writing for the New York Times or, you know, working and living in a penthouse in San Francisco, that their lives are a failure. Um, I mean, it is really a pernicious thing to say, unless I have a million views on YouTube and I'm on my way to, you know, being a movie star, somehow my life didn't work out. And, you know, most people's lives just don't work that way. And I, and I, I'm, I'm less worried about it than Quinto because I think, you know, uh, the, I, in the book, I talk about Sturgeon's law where the great sci-fi writer, Theodore Sturgeon said 90% of everything is crap. <laughs> um, you know, 90% of all of this is crap and it's going to get, it's going to get washed away. Um, and there's a lot of talentless people who will be temporarily famous, but I think people who are really good at things, whether they're actors or writers or engineers or diplomats or whatever it is, they, they will eventually rise to the top, but it is more difficult to do that. Now there is no doubt about it because we have dumbed down the notion of excellence in just about every field. Towards the end of the book, you say that lay people complain about the rule of experts and they demand greater involvement in complicated national questions. But many of them only express their anger and make these demands after abdicating their own important role in the process, namely to stay informed and politically literate enough to choose representatives who can act on their behalf. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, put another way, who keeps putting all these terrible politicians in powers? Ask the voters. <laughs> um, you know, uh, there was, um, uh, I just gave a talk the other day to a group that, you know, kind of, most people I think are a little skeptical of my, this, when I first put it out there, because they say, Oh, here comes another guy kind of lecturing at us about this. And I put up a map that was just in the, New, um, the Washington post a couple of days ago, about a week or so ago in uh, late, um, May, early May. And, uh, it was a map of, 
Europe and Asia with little red dots all over it. I mean, all the way from Australia out to Azerbaijan to, you know, the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And what every one of those dots represented was an American adult's guess about where North Korea is. Wow. <laughs> yes. And there were just see all these red dots. And, you know, after I'd given this whole thing about, you know, people really are abdicating their civic responsibility and they're not learning enough and they don't bother to read a newspaper, you know, and I got a little kind of people, you know, furring their brows. Oh, is that really true? And I put up this map and there was an audible gasp in the room because, you know, people were locating North Korea in like the Caspian Sea. Um, and a similar ex experiment was done in 2014 with Ukraine where people uh, were who felt very strongly about military action in Ukraine were also people who were most likely to put Ukraine in places like, you know, South America. <laughs> and so, you know, my, I always throw this question back to the public. They say, we want more involvement. And I say, what are you doing to make your involvement meaningful so that we don't produce you know, outcomes where you think you're sending troops to Uruguay instead of Ukraine. And they say, well, you're obviously just an elitist and, you know, you, the conversation doesn't get very far. But my, I'm, I'm hardcore on this. If you can't find Syria on a map, you probably don't deserve to be taken very seriously about Syria. And that's really <laughs> all I'm asking. Yeah. And you talk about like the, the rise of the no information voter, the low no information voter. And Increasingly, right, they're usually the undecided. They're usually the most influential voters. I mean, they're the ones that, you know, it's fascinating to me. If you can't make up your mind during the last week of the, before the election, Romney or Obama or Clinton or Trump, Clinton and Trump, find you know, enough differences that you're sitting on the fence. <laughs> Are you awake? Like, well, you know, with Romney and Obama, I remember my, my, my father, God rest his soul, he passed away just before that election took place. And he was not an Obama voter. Uh, he was a Republican, but he didn't mind Obama. Um, and I remember he was watching a rally and uh, my dad kind of shrugged. And he said, well, I'm going to vote for Romney. He said, but he pointed at Obama. He said, oh, he's a good man. We'll be fine either way. We'll be all right either way. And I could understand people who got to the point of, you know, uh, no drama, Obama, and, you know, low-key Mormon governor of Massachusetts going, I don't know, this one's a coin. You know, if you, unless you were a Mormon or an African-American or somebody who had a kind of an identity interest in this or you're from Massachusetts or Hawaii. But for most people, I could see them saying, I understand that this is going to be a close call. The people who were t saying two days before the election, you know, it's either going to be Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, and I just don't know. Well, you know, if you went through that election and your <laughs> mind wasn't made up, the, un you know, until you got to the voting booth, that, that to me really raises some serious questions about whether you were ever paying attention. <laughs> and either way, I mean, I didn't really care which way, you know. It, it's not a matter of saying you should have decided one way or the other. The fact that you were unable to decide at all I mean, like you, I was like, well, how, you know, do you have a television? Do you, <laughs> right, have right. you been in America? Were you know, have you, were you on an ice flow? How do you not have an opinion about this? You know, Harry Frankfurt wrote a book. He's a retired philosopher from Princeton. He wrote a book called On Bullshit. Mm -hmm. a great book. The first sentence of the book is like one of the best sentences of any book I've ever read. The most salient feature of our culture is that there's so much bullshit. <laughs> and he talks about how. The liar is morally superior. He's like talking, uh, quoting Augustine and talking about how the liar at least gets some uh, derivative virtue because they have to know the truth well enough to, to, to cover it and to make right. sure. That it, but the bullshitter is just kind of talking, spinning a narrative, talking to hear themselves, like trying to give out an affect. And he says right. that part of the reason is there's so much uh, people think like they have to know everything. 
and they don't they they don't diff, just say hey expert we have to consult experts or something especially in the political class and they just wind up bullshitting you know and, and just like spinning a narrative that's that is so not grounded to the truth but also not trying to cover it up either sometimes like yeah pe- people really feel the need be- and again this is why I talk about narcissism uh, they really feel the need to fake cultural literacy which is worse than anything. And, you know, Frankfurt's point about, about bullshit is, is a beautifully taken point because, uh, if you, if you read C.S. Lewis about sin, right, he says, you know, the, you have to know what virtue is to be a really great sinner. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. That, that you, that to, to know, uh, you know, to know the thrill of doing something awful, you need to know what it would be to be good rather than to be kind of a bumbling moron who does bad things because you simply don't know any better. And that is the classic, you know, that's what Frankfurt's talking about with this kind of classic bullshitting of, you know, I don't, I'm not really, li- I don't even know if I'm lying. You know, that, that's the person who's, who's uh, Cliff Clavin who I talk about in, you know, in the book, the mailman from the old series Cheers, who began every sentence with, well, uh, it's a known fact, <laughs> you know, and, and he believes it. I mean, at that, you know, Cliff was one of the all time great, uh, even as a fictional character, one of the all time great bullshitters of modern American culture. Um, and the beauty of it is that Cliff himself never knew when he was telling the truth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now the problem is what happens in a culture when we're all that guy and, and Cliff bet it all in jeopardy. Yeah, Cliff, right. Cliff bet it all on Jeopardy and uh, and and insisted that his answer was right. <laughs> Three people uh, that have never been in my kitchen. Talk exactly. to Tony Curtis. He's still but, alive. But imagine, you know, I mean, to me, modern America is, uh, you know, cheers, my beloved local bar full of characters, except they're all Cliff now. It's just a bunch of guys all pointing their fingers at each other saying, it's a known fact and studies have shown. And, uh, you know, it's a shame that I'm so smart when you're so dumb. And, I mean, it just goes on and on and on with people who cannot just sit and accept the limitations of, you know, maybe I ought to learn something. Maybe I'm good at one thing, but I'm not good at the other thing. Because that's this, that's the other thing is this, this notion that we all have to pretend to some kind of omnicompetence. Um, a, a photographer was telling me about how every time she, she does a wedding, somebody walks up to her and points at her equipment and says, uh, so uh, kind of, uh, what kind of lenses are you using there? And she says, and it's always somebody who knows nothing about photography. <laughs> they just have to come over and say, I just want you to know, I know a lot about everything, including <laughs> photography. So speaking of bullshit, bullshitters and modern American life, can we talk about the news? Let's talk about bullshitting and, and bullshitters, said two guys on a podcast. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> uh, so, like, this, um, that's all the, the recent the, the week's events with the intelligence um, disclosure to um, the, the Russian ambassador and the foreign minister. Uh, how big of a deal is this? Like you're a national security expert. You know a lot about Russia. You can find Ukraine on a map. I bet you consistently. Um, <laughs> uh, how, I mean, how much of, of the story is is media inflation? How much of it is 
hey, we really need to worry about this and take this seriously. No, it's a big deal. It is a big deal. And it's a big deal in several respects, not just because of the president's behavior. I mean, um, you know, for the president to just kind of on the spot. By the way, people should understand the president can do this. It's not illegal, and it's well within his powers as as president to simply say. He decides what's classified and not classified. He can just decide, right. It's, I feel, you know, in the need in the interest of national security, I'm going to tell the Russians, you know, X, Y, and Z. He can do that. Uh, whether it's a good idea is something entirely different. And I, I just don't, you know, I, the president strikes me as being someone who's so impulsive that, it, that, that I just don't think it was a good idea. The thing that really scared me about it is when you try to tell people, because that night I was trying to, I was on Twitter, I was trying to, people were asking me the kind of questions you're asking me. When you try to explain to people, this is why seat of the pants declassification at that moment is a bad idea, they kind of wave it all away with, oh, this is all just expert bullshitting. I'm like, no, there's a whole process behind what establishes what's releasable to a foreign country, because we do have that. We do that all the time. We share secrets with other countries. That's an important part of intelligence work. But but there's a process and there's expert adjudication that's done. And the idea that you, you know, that you think it was funk, funny and cool and decisive that the president just hauled it off at that moment, you know, really is, I find a worrisome thing because people just don't want to hear about the hard work that goes into making sure these things are adequately protected. The other part of that story that I think is terrible is that somebody then leaked the details of what the president said. The fact of the matter is the American people, do, you know, I think it's important for the American people to know that the president did this as a part of their role in accountability, but they don't need to know exactly what was said. And, and that really infuriates people when they say, well, you're saying I don't need to know. Well, then let me just repeat. You don't need to know, partly because you, there's nothing you can do with that information and mostly because you wouldn't understand it anyway, but someone who has who is smarter than you and has a, a um, nefarious interest will understand it better than you. And that should have been kept out of the media. But, the Ameri- but you know, it's always, especially since Watergate, people say, well, the public has a right to know. The public does not have a right to know everything if it endangers the security of the community. I'm not even going to say the country, but of the community. But also, if the public's going to demand a right to know, then the, the right to know implies an obligation to understand. Hmm. And they don't. They said, like, the same thing happened with WikiLeaks and Snowden. Oh, just give us all the raw stuff. We'll just read it. No, life doesn't work that way. People don't understand what they're reading. You don't just splatter it all over the Internet and let people pick through it like a big top secret junk pile. But that's what people want to do because it makes them feel important and it makes them feel smart. And it's part of the concern here, too. If we have a president that people are concerned that flies by the seat of his pants, makes pretty snap decisions with foreign countries. I mean, we don't want allies think right thinking like, well, maybe we shouldn't pass this intelligence along because who knows who's who it's going to be shared with uh, while somebody's eating a second scoop of ice cream and bragging about his chocolate cake. Right. Well, that's why there's a process. That's why you don't do it this way. Uh, that's why when the president, you know, in in a normal administration, when the president meets. Uh, with foreign leaders, he's there's a briefing beforehand, and he meets with his national security team, and they say, here's the stuff we think you ought to tell him, and here's the things we think you, ought, you shouldn't ought to tell him. And that all gets hashed out beforehand. You don't just walk into a meeting and, and wing it. I mean, we no, 
even, and I'm surprised, you know, that people defend this on the part of the president because, I mean, did he do business that way? Do you just walk into a meeting? Uh, you know, if you have it on your calendar that you're going to buy a skyscraper, do you just walk in and say, well, don't show me any files. I'm just going to walk in and wing it? Of course not. But, he um, might but have people think this is easy, been, and that's the problem. He's never been the CEO of a company that was publicly traded or had a board. Or, right, I mean, maybe that's he, true, too. I mean, he ran a little boutique operation at Trump Tower. Maybe this is how he did business. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it would certainly explain a lot about how a lot of his businesses turned out. That's for sure. <laughs> now, you kind of talk about the book, the, the, the campaign. I mean, this is sort of like the reification uh, writ large of what you argue is the problem. Right? I mean, Trump ran on uh, against experts. I know more than the generals. I know. Right. I, I, no one knows more about hacking than me. I mean, I read the entire Iran deal. That was my favorite. I read the whole <laughs> Iran deal. There is no such thing as the whole Iran deal, but he claimed to have read it. So, so I mean, so okay. So we should be concerned. And do you think? I mean, how do you think? How, how do you think we deal with this as a country? What are your hopes with what's happening with the administration? I mean, do you think there's uh, there's hope for some bipartisan, responsible action to to, to to get us Probably to some state not. Um, so thanks. Goodbye. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, probably not. I, I think that the two tribes are too dug in. Um, nobody's going to do anything. Now, it, this, you know, as we speak, the whole Comey thing is blowing up. So I, I don't know if that will change anything. But I think on most issues, um, you're going to get two, two different things happening at the same time. One is that, uh, that when it comes to the actual institution of the presidencies. Both sides are dug in. The Democrats and the Republicans are going to just fight about this. Um, but on when it comes to the making of policy, the, the irony here is that because the president is not a policy guy, because he's just embroiled in all of these kind of, you know, um, stepping on rake moments that he and his staff can't seem to avoid, um, the guy that was sent to Washington to change everything and shake everything up is actually going to have the opposite effect. The government will pretty much run on, uh, you know, the, the Congress, for example, they'll, they'll figure out how to keep funding the government and they'll divvy up the money and they'll do, you know, reconciliation bills in the middle of the night the way they always have. And, and things will actually change less because the government is basically functioning without stronger guidance from a president who, who would master those details. Um, so in a way there's a, there's a kind of hugely ironic karmic, um, circle here where the people who ignored expertise because they thought it would change Washington is actually going to let Washington function the way it always has because they sent somebody there who does not have enough skill to get involved in that process. Yeah. I, and I, I think heard, look it, at the, look at the two executive orders and the healthcare bills and you can see it right there. Yeah, the stock market too dropped to its lowest point it's been since September. And some of you are saying that they think it's like that the market is just losing confidence, business losing confidence, that this guy could get anything done. Like the confidence that, okay, he might be good for business. That's eroding because it looks like he's not going to be good for any. It's just not going to be able to get anything done. Right, right. And the default setting will be back to, you know, continuing resolutions and, you know, piecemeal stuff here and there. Um, I think part of the, what the, and I am not a market analyst, so let me not try to trespass my own expertise. But I think it was understandable if American markets, at least in the short term, said, well, we're not going to get a liberal Democrat who's going to, you know, try to up our taxes and, you know, burden us with more regulation, who's going to, um, you know, put the screws to the banks and all that. So, I mean, when, when Trump came in, and this is another one of these 
horrendous ironies, right, that Trump came in because Ohio and Michigan and Wisconsin wanted to send a, a message to the elites. The first thing that happened was that bank stocks jumped up. The big winners in the market for the first month were all banks um, because they figured, well, this will be less regulation. Now I think they're probably saying, well, you know, now we're going to settle back to normal because nothing's going to get done. And expertise matters. I mean, you, if you send someone to Washington who says, I don't know anything about politics or policy, well, you know, bills still have to get passed. Things have to get done. The lights have to be turned on. Um, you know, airplanes still have to be directed in the skies. You, you, you can't just walk in and say, okay, everybody stop what you're doing. It doesn't work that way. Who knew healthcare could be so complicated? Who knew healthcare could be so <laughs> Or, you know, uh, this China and Korea thing, it turns out Asian history is actually very complex. <laughs> I mean, you know, these were all things. I mean, I, I was pulling my hair out at those moments because I was, you know, for a year before that saying, stop assuming that everything has these simple answers. And of course, a lot of Trump voters were hitting back at me saying, guys like you make things more complicated so that you can get a paycheck out of it. And, <laughs> you know, okay, well, now you've got the president saying, boy, whew, who knew, you know, China, Korea, two different, turns out two different countries. <laughs> yeah. And I love when he said to the Australian prime minister, I mean, I mean, we're saying here, you know, that, you know, I'm sitting here, I don't want to, my friend, Australian friend has better health care than we do. And I'm thinking they have single payer, dude. Right. <laughs> like, like you know, uh, the people who, the people who elected Republicans and, and of course, remember again, I'm not, I speak only for myself here. The people who elected Republicans and a burn it all down president saying we are going to repeal health care. And then three months later, after thinking about health care for more than 10 minutes, he says, boy, that Australian thing, that's pretty good. <laughs> well, Okay. Um, I, I think in part, as you were saying, the election was really a kind of a primal scream by people who, who think, and I get this so often since I wrote the book, who think that, that these um, elites are controlling their lives. And you can hear it when conservatives and libertarians talk about the administrative state. Steve Bannon the president's advisory talks about taking apart the administrative state. And they're right. I mean, as a conservative myself, it is true. Government does too much. But I, I always throw this back. In every talk I give, I throw it back to the audience when I say the reason there's an administrative state is because you want the government to do a lot of things for you, and you don't, <clears throat> you don't want to know how it's done. You're yeah. saying, you know, give us all of these things and don't you know, don't burden us with the details of how it's done. I said, you know, one, one guy came, um, asked me a question. I was in Minneapolis a couple of days ago and he said, um, you know, this is about power and ordinary people don't have power. And I said, that power is lying in the street. You can pick it up and take it anytime you want. All you have to do is read a newspaper and show up to vote. In a country, you know, you, we were talking about how divisive this last election was and undecided voters. And, and only in America could we talk about an intensely divisive election where only 60% of the people showed up to vote. Hmm. What, what do you think it is as simple as, like, reading the newspaper? I mean, would you say yes, that really part of, this is the biggest step, like, that anybody can take to combat this, like, sort of demonization of expertise and the ignorant the dumbing down of America is actually just... Get a professional journalistic newspaper, you know, the New York Times, the Washington, the Wall Street Journal, something, and just read it carefully. Absolutely. And, you know, as I often yell at people on Twitter when they start arguing with me about something, I say, you know, read a damn book. Um, somebody asked me a question in a, in, in, the other day about something, and they said, well, where would I find the answer to this? And I said, well, in the Constitution of the United States. <laughs> well, you know, it's not a long read. 
It's a little chewy. It's a little thick, but it's short. Um, and it was a basic question about how do you, you know, how, how do you change the Constitution? How do you amend the Constitution? I said, well, you know, there's a good reading on this. It's called the Constitution of the United States. Um, <laughs> and people just don't want to do that foundational kind of reading. And, and, the, and what really blows my mind is people say, well, I don't have time to do that. Well, you have time to watch three hours of ESPN. Yeah, when everybody says like I don't have time, I say no. I mean, you choose not to make the time, and that you may be a legitimate decision. Like we all, we all only have. You can do you have anything. Time to grab but that you can't do everything. Trophy on Xbox. You have time. Yeah, yeah, you have time. Yeah. Um, thanks so much. This is your. This is a fascinating conversation, and I hope that that your book and your voice is heated, and that we actually come to value expertise again. Because I think well, thank, we need thank it. you so much, and thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Take care. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And do check out Tom's book, The Death of Expertise. It's a great read. And until next time, fare thee well.